Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Good afternoon. It is Friday, January 27th, 2012, and my guest today is Liz Wiseman. And Liz is the co-author of a book called Multipliers. And I am going to let Liz just give us a, a little uh, introduction to her both personally and professionally, and tell us how she came to the place where this book just had to make it on paper. Liz, welcome. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Great. So what did you do before you became an author? <laughs> you know, I have spent my career in, in corporate education. Uh, when I set up my Twitter account, you have to describe yourself in very few words, and I I think I put in there management educator and learning fanatic. Um, prior to the work I'm doing now and the, the 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 research work, the writing I'm doing in leadership and management, I was at Oracle for 17 years, and oh. I ran the corporate university there. So oh, cool. I, yeah, I have uh, always spent my time looking at how do you get learning to the people who need it to keep a business moving forward, delivering products. Um, and it was actually my experience at Oracle um, that really was the the germ for the book Multipliers. Well, tell us about the multiplier effect and, and what that term really means. I mean, I think we all, uh, you and I were talking before we uh, began recording the call about helping out uh, fifth graders with math, and I have learned a whole new way of multiplying. <laughs> but the multiplier effect you're talking about isn't pure math. No, the multiplier effect is about a kind of leader that we have studied who gets so much more from people around them. And it started with um, a very, very simple observation I had in my time at Oracle. And, you know, one of the things I loved about Oracle from my, my day one experience right out of business school was that I worked with brilliant people. And because I ran the corporate university, I worked very closely with the executive team. Um, from, from a quite young age in my career, I had a lot of executive exposure and sat on the management committee of the company. And I worked around brilliant executives, and but I could see the effect that they had on people around them because I worked with the, the whole um, executive team. And I, I, I asked myself this question all the time. I'm like, why is that person so smart, but yet no one around them gets to be smart? And this other leader who's just equally brilliant has a way of just bringing out brilliance around them. You know, why are people such geniuses around Ray Lane, who was the president of Oracle during a lot of the time I was there? But yet when I see those very same people around other executives, I would watch them kind of hold back, shut down, you know, mm. kind of back away. And I thought it was so curious. And I think it was in leaving Oracle, I left five years ago, actually six years ago, to go out and do executive coaching, and I left with that kind of lingering, almost this nagging question. And 
you know, it helped me see that inside of our organizations is far more intelligence than we can see, kind of more intelligence than meets the naked eye, if you will, right. and more intelligence than we're using. And I watched how some of these executives um, use that intelligence to the fullest, and other executives just shut it down. Like, you know, I would watch people dumb down hmm. around them, and it wasn't until I was out coaching um, a high-tech exec at a, another technology firm here in the Bay Area, and we were talking about this idea, you know, that some leaders have this kind of infectious, viral intelligence um, around them. And, you know, th- this executive I was coaching, he says, Liz, I think I really see what you're saying. It's These leaders are amplifiers to the intelligence of others. And from there, mm, kind of coined this term, multipliers. And I, I simply was out, um, particularly looking for some research, trying to shed some light on this, this question I had. And I found there was no research out there. I went out to Harvard Business Review, to um, Strategy and Business, just a lot of the academic um, journals. I couldn't find anything. And so I decided I would research this and really study why some leaders whom we came to call multipliers who use their intelligence to amplify the intelligence of people around them and and literally, you know, make people smarter and more capable. You know, why these leaders got so much more from people and why other leaders um, whom we came to call diminishers seem to drain this intelligence. That's really where it came from. And, um, And this core idea that maybe the most important role a leader plays is to use their intelligence to spark, provoke, um, right. unleash, if you will, the intelligence of people around them. You know, one of the things I value most is uh, intellectual curiosity, which is, you know, normally you can see it, uh, whether it's in a group or, or in an organizational hierarchy, as the person who will bring to bear to a problem, uh, well, I read in, you know, X and, you know, quote whatever book you want, you know, that they looked at this and this other industry. And so the ability to pull in and assimilate information, largely from books, simply because that, that's, a, you know, a, a, an easy way for us to get new ideas. And, and those people who tend to do that um, end up actually really feeding well off of people that are intelligence amplifiers because they don't get shut down immediately because that person is open. And, of course, you would get more out of people. But you talked a few minutes ago about uh, talent and and not only how people behaved differently in it and actually appeared more or less talented based on who they were around. So you have, in, in Chapter 2, you actually talk about a talent magnet. So is this the same person who is the talent magnet? Well, I, what we found is, uh, when we studied these multipliers and these diminishers, we found essentially three things. One is that they see the world in fundamentally different ways. You know, the core assumption of the diminisher is that people aren't going to figure it out without them. You know, they create a dependence on them. Um, you know, it's almost like no one's going to figure this out without me and my great big brain, you know, to mm-hmm. solve this problem. The way the multipliers tend to see the world is just with a very simple but sharp assumption that People are smart and they're going to figure it out, you know, which allows them to orient outward into the capability and the intelligence of others. So that was the first thing we found. The second thing we found is that they do a lot of things alike, which is why sometimes it's um, tricky to tell the differences. 
but they do five things very, very differently. We look to isolate. What are those things they do differently? One of those things is how they manage talent, and I'll get back to that in, in just a second. We call that the talent magnet. Uh, the third thing that we found is that they get very different results from people. And, and Vicki, when I started this research, I probably would have hypothesized that these multipliers got 25% more, 40%. I just watched mm-hmm. some leaders get so much more out of me and, and the, uh, other people. And what we found in our research, done very, very conservatively, you know, without these labels, multipliers, diminishers, but done very conservatively, found that multipliers get on average twice the capability of diminishers. You know, mm. which if you look wow, at this in reverse, you know, leaders who have, you know, who fit this diminisher profile are getting half of the intelligence of people around them, which when you look at it, you know, I, I ran a fairly large organization at Oracle, and you look at the you know, when you've got hundreds of people in your your organization and you look at the payroll and you think about when these organizations are led by diminishers or when I was having a diminishing effect, I think about, you know, getting half the output off of my payroll. I think that, you know, the company is paying a dollar and getting 50 cents back on that. They're getting 50 right. cents put toward their biggest problems. And I looked at this extraordinary waste. You know, I actually think that, the, you know, we talk about um, corporate theft, you know, stealing assets or even stealing intellectual property. I think the real theft is is leaders who, who basically waste, who kind of um, peel off this capability and hold it back from the company. So that's in in essence what we found is that these multipliers have this uh, 2x or greater effect. You know, as we, um, I've been off doing a lot of speaking and and further research out in um, Asia and Latin America and a lot of time recently in the Middle East, and we're finding in some of these organizations, um, particularly ones where the culture is, is deeply based in hierarchy, you know, and some of it even gender um, related hierarchy, that right. this 2x effect is more like a 3x or a 4x kind of effect. Um, and so we're really looking to help leaders reverse that. How do you get everything, 100% of the intelligence of the people around you, and what suddenly becomes possible when you do? Um, mm. So that's what we found at the highest level. And then, you know, I'm happy to share with you each of these um, the five things that we found that really, really differentiate the multiple. Yeah, no, I'm I am very interested in hearing about that because you know I, I always share with our listeners um, a, a bit of the outline of the book and and this book begins uh, first of all by a, uh, with a foreword by Stephen uh, R. Covey. And then it begins laying out what the multiplier effect is. And then it talks about the talent magnet, the liberator, the challenger, the debate maker, and the investor. So uh, does that uh, line up with those things that you found were the differences between the individuals? You know, it really does. In fact, the layout of the book was pretty simple. The first chapter is really looking at this phenomenon and the impact that they have. And then there is a chapter on each one of these five disciplines. And, and it does end with how do you sort of set a pattern to lead more like a multiplier. Um, you know, whether you are sort of already a multiplier today, how do you strengthen that? Um, maybe you're 
a diminisher. I can't tell you how many people read the book and go, Liz, you know, you wrote this book about me and it's about the <laughs> diminisher side. Like they see themselves in this. Um, and, you know, a lot of us are in between those two stations um, and a lot of us are the accidental diminisher. Um, you know, we are so well-intended. We really, you know, want to get the most out of our people. We value the other people we work with, but you know, just following a lot of popular management practice can have a very diminishing effect. Um, and so actually, you know, I wrote the book for the accidental diminisher. Huh. Those of us who have really great intentions, want to be good leaders, um, but there's some really subtle ways that we, we shut folks down. Um, I'm constantly aware of, of when I do it, not only at work, but in my home. Right. You know, when it's homework time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So so talk to us a little bit about the liberator. Yeah. The liberator is about creating space for people to think. And in contrast, what we find diminishers do, this is really about the work environment that they create. Diminishers tend to be, um, I call them tyrants. They create anxiety that tends to just shut down people thinking, you know, we, we all know what happens to our brains when we experience anxiety, you know, the amygdala hijack. We talk a lot about um, the amygdala taking over. We know it's sort of our survival emotional mm-hmm. brain, but we don't talk a lot about what part of our brain shuts down. And that is, you know, the prefrontal lobe, the neocortex, the part of our minds that do analytics trade-offs, logic, reasoning, all of our critical thinking capabilities tends to shut down when we experience stress. And and really what the liberator does is to they create space for other people to do their best thinking. They create space for people to contribute. Some of that comes from knowing when to hold back themselves. You know, I mentioned that a lot of us are accidental diminishers. Um, you know, some of us who are, um, are high energy, uh, maybe we've been blessed with the gift of gab. You know, maybe we're just <laughs> quick with an idea. A lot of times we have a diminishing effect by just being too present. Right. You know, being oh, big. that that describes me to a T in a corporate environment. <laughs> and it was what was interesting, and and uh, you know, I, I think if you take a look at how people behave in certain settings, um, what worked against me in corporate life, made me the best consultant ever. Mm, interesting. Yeah, and and as a manager, sometimes, you know, we've been, and this is one of these false notions that, you know, managers have to be big, that they need this, like, big executive presence. And as I've studied this and just watched really phenomenal executives, the very best ones, do not have this kind of constant dynamic presence. They're not like, hey, how you doing? You know, these are not, like, sorority girls and frat boys, these these are leaders who know when it's time to be big and they know when it's time to be small. And by being big at times, they set direction, they issue challenges. But by being small, you know, maybe they ask a big question, but then they they hold back and they create space for other people to contribute. Um, you know, Chicky, you mentioned, like, oh, this describes me to a T. You know, for those of us who were blessed with this, you know, ability to kind of be articulate, gift of gab, whatever. I like to give um, those of us the, the, the poker chip challenge. And uh, I had a, a client, a tech exec, who who had this challenge. He just had a lot to say and a lot to offer. And 
He was going into a big meeting. It was a big two-day summit. He pulled all his team together from around the world, and he really wanted the team to own the strategy. It was a strategy summit. And I I, kind of gave him a challenge, an invitation. I gave him five poker chips. I said, Matthew, do you think you can run this meeting with these five chips, each chip representing a comment, a contribution, an idea that you offer? He's kind of looking at me very suspiciously. (laughs) And and, because I gave him some um, time units on each of these, you know, 60, 90, 120, 30, and 45. And he said, those are minutes, right? And I said, no, no, those are seconds. (laughs) He said, that's outrageous. You don't want me to run this meeting for two days with five comments. The biggest one is two minutes. And I said, yeah, you know, could you do this? And he took this challenge, which he said was the hardest thing he's ever done in his career. And I was there for those two days because I was helping him with this um, strategy and organizational challenge. And I watched him Number one, create room for everyone else to step up, right. you know, who normally would have held back to let him direct things. And when he came in, he played these chips brilliantly. He came in at all the right times. It was painful mm. for him to do this, to hold back and let things go. But when he came in, he came in huge. And uh, I've never seen him be more brilliant. He says probably well, and I'm sure his team thought it was the best meeting ever. I think they did, for he still says this was the best development he's ever done in his entire career. Mm. But this is just an example of one of the ways that we can very accidentally, you know, stifle the intelligence of others. We don't tend to do it by saying, hey, stupid idea. Do you have any good ones? Right. We do it sometimes by just giving too much of the answer Right, dominating. Yeah. Definitely dominating. And, and again, I mean, I, I definitely resemble that particular <laughs> remark. And, well, uh, you know, I can think of a number of meetings where uh, that particular challenge would have been very, very useful uh, yeah. to have a different result uh, in a meeting that I was facilitating. So let's um, let's talk just briefly um, about the challenger and the debate maker and the investor mm-hmm. and, and how those things play out uh, in the multiplier. Yeah, the challenger is, uh, you know, I, I have to say, you know, the challenger discipline is probably my favorite because it represents that the multiplier way of leading is not a soft, feel good. It's mm-hmm. not even necessarily a warm way of leading, and they're not even necessarily nice guys. All these multipliers we studied, they they ask people to do hard things. They create vacuums that other people have to step into. They're they're leaders that see intelligence in others and they're demanding that other people contribute and solve problems. And what the challenger essentially does is they invite people to take on stretch challenges. They invite people into an uncomfortable space. They do it by asking hard questions. You know, the diminisher in this realm, you know, the realm being how we set direction for our organizations the diminisher mm-hmm. tends to be a know-it-all. You know, they set direction based on what they see, what they know. Um, you know, the problem with that, obviously, is they don't know everything. And, and these leaders rarely ask other people to do things they don't know how to do. You know, the challenger, on the other hand, these are leaders that shamelessly ask people to do hard things. One of the multipliers we studied, Marguerite Hancock, who, you know, um, oh, she's, a, she's a researcher professor at Stanford. But she also runs this really phenomenal 
um, Girl Scout program up in the Sierra Mountains, and her team, all volunteers, said she is shameless about asking us to do hard things. You know, at the end of this girls' camp, we have given everything. We are so exhausted. We're tired, but we can't wait to do it again. <laughs> These kind of leaders tend to um, tend to think in, in questions rather than answers. You know, they ask questions that focus the intelligence and energy of their teams. And, um, you know, one of the ways that we accidentally diminish is we tend to just be quick with with an answer and, a, you know, or quick with an idea. Uh, one of the, the challenges I, I like to, to offer here is, you know, can you lead with nothing but questions? And I call this the extreme question challenge. It's In some ways, it's even harder than the poker chip challenge. Right. I I wish I had invented the extreme question challenge, but I really didn't. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was the very first victim of this, and it was it was kind of – accidentally invented by my colleague at work. I was, um, this was about 10 or 12 years ago. I have four kids today, but, you know, back then I had a mere three. And they were six, four, and two, and I had this big job at Oracle and this big job at home. And I was telling my friend, Brian, I'm like, Brian, you know, truth be told, I'm, I'm kind of a bossy mom. You should see me at my house. I'm constantly having to tell my kids what to do. You know, put that away, put that over here, clear your place, come on, it's bedtime, get your pajamas on, no, we'll turn those around, those are inside out, you know, go, go put that away, go get brush your teeth, no, go back, you know, use toothpaste, get a book, bring the book over here, right here, come on, okay, say your prayers, get in bed, get, no, not my bed, go, you know, get back in bed, and, you know, I was like a little benevolent dictator in my house, and maybe even sometimes not so benevolent, and and you know what Brian said to me, it was it was wicked, he said, Liz, what, what, you know, why don't you go home tonight and talk to your children only in the form of questions? No statements, no directions, just questions. Mm. I thought, wow, I'm like, he clearly doesn't understand what time they go to bed. I'm going to be home at 6. They don't go to bed till 9.30. I can't do that for three and a half hours. <laughs> but I found out I could because I decided I was going to take his challenge. And if I was taking mm. it, you know, because I'm kind of that sort of gal, I'm going to go all the way with it. And that night when we got to bed time, I just looked at my watch and I said to my kids, six, four, and two years old, I said, hey, you know, what time is it? What's the time for? And they said, well, it's bedtime. I said, well, what do we do at bedtime? What comes first? We put away our toys. And they did. And I said, and then what do we do? Well, we get our pajamas on. Well, who needs help? And then what do we do once we have our pajamas on? We brush our teeth. You know, who's going to be first? And then once our teeth are brushed, what do we do? Well, we read a story. Well, what story are we going to read tonight? Who's going to pick the story? Who's going to read the story? And they picked my husband, which that, it was all working out quite well. And then I said, well, what do we do? And we, well, we say our prayers, Mom. And then and then what? We get into bed. And they went and they got in their beds, and they stayed in their beds. And I'm standing in the hallway, dumbfounded. Yeah, incredulous. <laughs> yes, I'm wondering, what has happened to my children? Because... They did not know how to do this yesterday. They did not. I'm sure of it. <laughs> you know, as I'm standing there, probably like the Grinch, you know, up on top of the mountain, I thought, wow, I wonder how long they've known how to do this. You know, and I found when I shifted into the role of asking the questions rather than telling people uh-huh. what to do, they, I found out how much my children knew and how much ownership that they were willing to take to get it done. And... 
I was so fascinated by what happened in my home that night that I kept it up for three three nights, just experimenting with this idea right. of extreme questions. And it profoundly and forever changed the way I parented, the way I led in my home. And I don't know, probably it was night two or three, I realized, wow, I bet the people I work with, the people on my management team, know a whole lot more than I can see. And so I started to ask the questions and let other people find the answers. And it's what these multipliers do. They let they, they ask hard questions that create a vacuum mm-hmm. that other people step into. And wow. it's miraculous what happens when you stop answering all of your own questions. Well, I, n- I may now have the answer as to why I'm parenting my children for the first time after 13 years when my husband went to get a job. <laughs> Perhaps this is the one lesson I need to learn to transform me into the kind of leader I need to be in my next venture that I've, I have started. Very, very interesting. Well, can we just touch real lightly on the debate maker and the investor because those intrigue me as well because – Debate can have a lot of different connotations, both positive and negative and intellectual and, um, you know, the person who just constantly tries to create that situation where uh, people are not coming to resolution. So um, which one of those is the debate maker? Well, the debate maker, um, and, and first of all, we picked, Greg and I picked the word debate very much on purpose. It is a controversial word. It has a lot of negative connotations, but what we found when we watch these multipliers, is they were they were as capable of making a decision as the diminishers, you know, who very much operate as the the, the decider, the decision maker. And but the, what the multipliers tend to do is they they frame a debate, they pose a question because they tend to think in questions. They pose a question, they form essentially the debate team. This is the team that's going to weigh in on this decision, they ask people to come into this debate, you know, and whether they formally call it a debate or not, to come in with data and with a point of view. Come in with a point of view and be prepared to advocate for a point of view. But they mix things up. One of the best debate makers we studied, Lutziab, um, one of my just favorite multipliers, one of the things he does in debate is he asks people to not come in and advocate for a point of view. Once the point of views are out on the table. He asks people to switch positions. He might uh-huh, say, to argue for the other one. Yes, you've been arguing for it. You want to go into this market, Liz. You've been arguing against it. Switch positions, Chicky. You argue against it, Liz. You're now for it. Um, or he says, you've been arguing it from an international perspective. I want you to look at this from a domestic point of view. CMO, I want you to look at this from a product point of view. Product leader, I want you to look at this from a support perspective. Mm. And so debate changes its complexion. Instead of it being this adversarial one winner, one loser, what comes out of it is a winning position because the emotion is taken out of it, but yet the decision gets pounded on almost ferociously. Right. It's really fun. Yeah, that's very interesting. I was telling somebody a story last week about when I was at American Airlines Sabre, and uh, and I'm trying to even remember who the CEO was at the time. Um, 
But what they did is they actually, there was a lot of tension between sales and operations, and they flip-flopped the VPs. I mean, not just in a debate, but in on the org chart. Oh, and the so they had to take the other position, and but they came into it with all of the knowledge um, and, and the position that they had in the other role. So uh, that that leader uh, was a true multiplier uh, in, in that particular sense. Right, because what he's suggesting here, she is suggesting is with the information that the other person has access to, you will be able to see these issues differently. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's this core notion that people are smart and they're going to figure it out. And if they're just exposed to the right circumstances and settings, they're going to be able to see this. Um, so that's the debate maker. And lastly, the investor. What we found is these multipliers transfer ownership to other people. They put other people in charge. Um, and then in exchange for that, they get to hold them accountable. And probably the quickest example of this is uh, John Chambers when CEO of Cisco. When Cisco was just sort of on its rapid growth, as in early on, he was hiring his very first vice president into the company. And he hired someone named Doug Allred to come in and lead the support division. And he looked at Doug and he said, Doug, when it comes to this part of the business, you get 51% of the vote. I will hold 49. Mm-hmm. He said, and you get 100% of the accountability. And it's such a great way to say, you know what, you're in charge. I, I mm. want to be consulted. You know, I right. want to be in the loop. I want to have I a voice that. into this. But you are in charge. Um, I had a colleague at work, and he and I just had this practice for years. We, we collaborated on things, but we needed to know which of the two of us is in charge. And we'd say, on this one, Ben, you're 51, I'm 49. Or he'd say, Liz, I think on this next one, you're 51, I'm 49. It was so clear who was the one who had to get up each morning thinking about how to move it forward. Wow. So they very, very powerful. In charge. And there's some simple, simple ways to do this. You know, 5149 is one of my favorite techniques for saying, you actually really, really are in charge, and I'm letting <laughs> go of it. So, Liz, you, you've described a lot of things that I think our, our listeners can really um, resonate with in, in their own lives, and, and maybe in different roles and under different leaders, they, they actually uh, flip-flop uh, between the diminisher and, and the multiplier. Um, I notice in your appendix that you've got a number of things, everything from the detailed definitions and the research that you went through. Um, but is there an instrument where they can take a test to determine, you know, where where they lie on this spectrum? You know, there there is. I'll, I'll kind of work it from the simplest up to kind of the most rigorous. The simplest test is your gut test when you, whether you're reading the book or you've you've listened to our conversation, you might have said, you know what, something resonates with me. This is the thing that I need to do to be more of a multiplier. Um, the Probably the, the next level up, we have this fun little um, quiz on our website. Um, my publisher at HarperCollins, Hollis, she calls it the Cosmo Quiz mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's just so simple. It's ten scenarios where we have a tendency to accidentally diminish. The quiz is called Are You an Accidental Diminisher? You can find it um, at the book website, which is multipliers book.com. There's a little icon there. It takes three minutes to take it. And it will 
show you kind of where you are on an accidental diminisher spectrum, but more importantly, here are your vulnerabilities. It doesn't make you a diminisher. It makes you vulnerable. Yeah, I know where my vulnerabilities are, where I have to be careful and hold back or use poker chips or thinking questions when I want to just give answers. Um, Then we also have kind of the the non-Cosmo quiz. We have a rigorous tool where we studied all of these behaviors. We've got an assessment, I think 50 different multiplier behaviors, 25 diminishers. You can do a self-assessment or a full 360, and you'll get very clear and detailed feedback as to where you fall um, in each one of these five disciplines, mm-hmm. you know, where you fall in the talent magnet spectrum, the deliberator, the challenger, right. the debate maker, the investor. Well, I can see how in a team environment, uh, you know, that instrument would be very, very valuable. Um, Liz, I want to be mindful of your time. So what I would like for you to do is you just shared your book website, which is multipliers, plural, book. Com. Uh, Liz, I know you also have a, a blog, and obviously the Weissman Group, you've got uh, a website there. Can you share that URL with our listeners? Yeah, sure. So our company URL is uh, com. If you go to WeismanGroup.com, it'll take you to an interior design firm, which I cannot <laughs> promise you is not going to be more interesting than our website, because on any given day, I'd rather shop for furniture than find out about my diminishing ways. But, uh, every now and then I forget to type the done. I go there, and I'm like, ooh, that's beautiful. Um, but it, it, you know, there it is, it's got um, information about the kinds of things we do. But, you know, right, we are really focused on how do we build leaders who can tackle the world's toughest challenges. And we think being a multiplier is a big part of that, our problems in our organizations are big, our challenges are huge, our opportunities are huge, and you know we have a very strong point of view in our little research and leadership development firm that leaders need to be able to access all of the intelligence around them, that you know, gone are the days where we can sort of just hire a bunch of people, use them at half their capability, and still somehow lead the market. Um, you know, we need to be like companies like, you know, Apple and Nike who have been taking these ideas and and saying, you know, our resources are scarce. We need to make sure we're getting everything out of our people as we go into emerging markets. Um, So that's really what we're all about is helping teach leaders, coach leaders, do, you know, management forms. How do you get access to all the intelligence around you? And if you can, what what can you take on that you couldn't take on before? How do you direct that intelligence against your biggest business problems? Right. Well, Liz, I can't wait to make it through the rest of the book. Uh, you know, as you were talking, there were so many things, uh, areas that I know that I still need to work on and, uh, you know, in, in building up my leadership capabilities. Like I said, I'm just heading into a brand-new venture and, uh I'm I'm really looking forward to to the leadership side of it. Uh, you know, building businesses is, is something that that I do kind of for a living, but but this one's for me. You know, usually I'm doing it for a third party. And and Liz, you, your book is intensely practical. Um, uh, I know Thank that you. some of that some of perfect. the folks. Some of the folks that are part of the Executive Girlfriends group also have need of keynote speakers for events. You are also a keynote speaker, 
and uh, your team does workshops and, you know, will come in and, and meet with leadership teams, uh, you know, to help them figure out how they can become multiplier types of leaders and to double their workforce for free, <laughs> which I think that. is a great tagline. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're just passionate about it. I, I want to just end on kind of this note about being intensely practical. And, you know, it's probably because I grew up at Oracle, and, you know, it's, it's a pretty tough environment, and I know how to get things done. And, you know, we have studied this academically, but... I have tried to really boil it down to some simple things we can do. I want to end on sort of this idea, this power of just doing one thing. I know so many of us have read books, oh, I need to do this, and you want to kind of adopt something wholesale. Or, you know, you walk out of a management meeting with 20 things on flip charts that you're supposed to go do. And I really counsel the leaders I coach and groups I teach, pick one thing. And it should be one thing that you can write on a post-it note with a Sharpie marker, a big, fat, chunky marker. If it's more complicated than that, I can almost promise you it's not going to get done. You Mm -hmm. know, one thing, maybe you just ask more questions. Maybe you play the talent magnet role and you find the genius of each member of your management team and you figure out how to put that to work. Or maybe... One of my favorites is you supersize someone's job and you give someone a job that's a little too big, you know, that they have to grow into, kind of the way you buy shoes for your kids. Right. You know, when they say, but, Mommy, my feet, you know, are flopping around, you just say, you know, like, hey, suck it up, princess, you're going to be just fine. (laughs) Put on two pairs of socks. (laughs) Put on two pairs of socks. And and it's what the best leaders do is they give people roles that are too big for them and they Mm. let them grow into them. So one thing, you know, one thing that you can do to lead more like a multiplier, and I think you might find just even in doing one small thing, you get this multiplier effect where people give you their very best and then they grow around you, and suddenly you're surrounded by brilliant people. And it's a really Mm -hmm. fun job to lead a team of brilliant people. Well, Liz, thank you so much for spending your Friday with us, and uh, you are welcome to join the Executive Girlfriends Group calls anytime that you want. Many of our uh, former speakers have become members, and uh, for those of you who are members of the Executive Girlfriends Group, uh, the link to Liz's website will be on uh, the Executive Girlfriends Group private Cubeless platform. Uh, this is the Executive Girlfriends Group, and if you have any more information about Egg, you can go to www.executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. Thanks again, Liz, and I look forward to uh, checking back in with you and letting you know how I did in becoming a multiplier. Would you please? Thank you. I love to hear people's success stories, including belly flops. So, <laughs> Well, hope, hopefully my biggest belly flops are behind me, but... Uh, I think you have armed me with some amazing tools. And again, I you know, I love the whole notion of becoming an amplifier for other people's talents and intelligence. I think that that, that is the greatest picture of all of a leader. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me here. Okay, Liz, take care. Thank Cheers. you. Bye-bye. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. 
and all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.